Good Sunday morning, everybody, and happy Palm Sunday, April 5th, 2020. Not exactly the kind of Palm Sunday we would have normally expected to experience, but we're glad you're virtually gathered all together. And uh, at the very end of today's message, our host, Dr. Pike, is going to give us some time to uh, greet one another and wave at one another. And it feels like we're connected. We're just hungry for this human connection, aren't we? I know I am. So thank you for being here. I'm glad you're gathered together. Today's topic, uh, kind of funny, as I think about how long ago we prepared for it, allowing Christ to overcome my irrational belief that everything always goes my way. <laughs> oh my, and what a week. I don't know what your week has been like. Mine was not exactly going my way every day. In fact, uh, a few days ago, I spent probably four good hours tussling with technology. That has become, in a sense, the bane of my existence since we've moved into this virtual world. <clears throat> and I was trying to get something accomplished on a day, and it was not happening. Things were not going my way. And I worked myself into such a frenzy that I had to go out and take a walk around the block and get my adrenaline level to come down a little bit. It was a rough day. I'm, I'm telling you, I was not okay that day. <laughs> Uh, very next day, got an email from Dr. Pipe. Looked like something was being sent to him that was going to require changing the software provider, or at least a different program from the same provider so that we could offer this virtual service to you. So things weren't going great technologically for him, for him either that day. And then I heard about one of our church members who had tried to get into human services to an account. He just needed to change one little thing that wasn't done right. Of course, the queue was huge because there's only several million people probably trying to get in to make these kind of changes for unemployment because of the pandemic. So it was not going to happen anytime soon. And he was probably experiencing that same technological frustration that all of us have been experiencing this last week. All of us have just sensed a, a feeling of loss. We've lost so many things because of the new world we find ourselves in. And then last Monday, I checked in with somebody and sent them just a real quick note and said, hey, how are you and your family coping? Are things going okay? And this person sent back a picture of their basement. And it looked like they were doing a basement modification, turning it into either a fish pond or a swimming pool. <laughs> Not exactly the way you want to spend your day when you're in the middle of a lockdown on a pandemic. So things did not go our way this last week, many of us. And yet that's becoming typical. And I think we probably need to start getting at the root of why things don't go our way. And I think it's also going to be helpful for us to know we can expect it to continue to go this way for some time. Many of you have seen shelves like this when you've gone out looking for you know what? This would be the toilet paper aisle. Not too much toilet paper to be found anywhere because it's pandemonium out there. Why do we think things should always go our way? Is there good reason for that? Do you have a philosophical foundation behind that notion that things ought to go your way? Is there some other religion around the world that you have locked onto that you can say, well, yes, this religion teaches this. And so I think that there's some good foundation for that. Or how about a biblical foundation? Is there anything in scripture that should teach us that, yes, we should expect everything to always go our way. And I would say, coming at this from a Christian worldview, no. <laughs> There's nothing in Scripture that should give us the indication that if we just trust Christ as Savior, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Jesus didn't teach that. As a Christian perspective, 
it's healthy for us to understand that we should not expect that things are going to go our way all the time. That's healthier than living a delusion that things always ought to go our way and then being disappointed all the time when they don't. Jesus never promised a hunky-dory lifestyle for his disciples. Didn't happen. To get to the underlying root for that, we have to understand that Jesus was teaching his disciples that things were not going to go hunky-dory if they followed him. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, he's not talking about flooded basements and call waiting when you're trying to get something done with unemployment. He's not talking about that kind of specifics here, but extrapolating where he's coming from, we do understand that he's saying, hey, things are not going to go right for you, especially if you follow me. And we Christians are starting to see more and more pushback as people disagree, sometimes angrily with our viewpoint, our worldview. And so things are not always going to go our way, even if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. There are three words for sin that I'd like to pay attention to because I think it starts to unpack for us what happened at the fall and why it's important for us to understand what happened at the fall and how does that impact things not going our way. The first word for sin, it's hamartia. It's from the Greek. It means missing the mark. If you think about a bow and arrow and you'd shoot at that target and it falls way short of the target. Well, our target would be holiness or righteousness or the perfection of God. None of us are going to come even close to that target. We're going to shoot that arrow and it's just going to go. It's going to fall way short. And we might think, well, that could be a mistake. Somebody could make a mistake. Yeah, I missed the target, but I'll just keep practicing and I'll get better. But if you look at Romans 5, you can see that the Bible doesn't teach that. The kind of missing the mark that Hamartia talks about is a deadly missing the mark. Therefore, just as through one man, meaning Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, all hamartia they fell short, which means that it's a deadly falling short. It's not something that we can say, yeah, I made a mistake. No big deal. No, this is sin. And it's falling short that has some intentionality behind it. Same thing is true with the second word, rasha. In Hebrew, means to intentionally stray or depart from the path. We might think of some little cute sheep, the little lammies, and they're eating their little grass. And they see some greener grass on the other side of a fence. And so they kind of squeech underneath. That's a good word, squeech underneath the fence. And they start nibbling their way apart from the other sheepies until pretty soon they realize, oh, I'm lost. I'm a lost little sheep. But it's not my fault. I was just nibbling my way out to the other pasture. Some sermons might give you that impression that we have strayed from the path, but we're all just little sheepies. But the word rasha in Hebrew means, no, you're going to intentionally say, I want that grass. (laughs) I'm going over there. And it's an intentionality behind the action of straying from that path. The same word is used in Psalm 18:21 as an example for Rasha. I have not wickedly departed, says David. He's using that in a positive sense that he has not done this. He says, God is blessing me because I have stayed on the path. I have not wickedly departed from the path, which gives you a sense that when we're using the word Rasha in Hebrew about straying, there's something wicked about that. There's an intentional willful effort to do the opposite of what God asks us to do. That's getting at the heart of what sin is about. 
And then the third one, pasha, also in Hebrew, means to rebel against authority. The word that's most often translated for us in English is to transgress. We are transgressors because we have rebelled against God's authority. Psalm 51, 13 says, Then I will teach transgressors, those who have rebelled, your ways, God's ways, so that sinners will turn back, get back on the right path again. They'll turn back to you. So here's the root problem. It's traced all the way back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. The root problem is this. I know more than God does. That's exactly what Satan tried to do when he was tempting Eve to take one bite of the apple. And then Eve also talks Adam into doing this. It's, uh, did God really say that? We can't trust God at his word. We know more than he does. It's going to be okay. That's at the root of everything that all these problems that are described as sin in the Bible are dealing with. And that's why in this fall, all of us, even believers, those of us who are new creations in Christ, still have that struggle. There's an inner tug of war because we're still trying to overcome that old nature by allowing Christ to overcome that and to impute within us or to transform us into his character qualities, into his new nature. And so every one of us as Christians are still a work in progress. So we're living in the betwixt and the the between. We're living in a world that has fallen and has not yet been redeemed. I'm starting to speak Hebrew now too. You didn't know that I had that gift. Up until now, I didn't know it either. There is evidence of the curse of sin Even in the coronavirus, that's something that we can see clearly if we look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Here are some of the things that happened because of the fall of mankind. First of all, mankind was separated from God, kicked out of the garden. Work would become much more difficult. It would have been easy just to have a garden with everything supplied for you. You want some good fruit to eat for lunch? Oh, there it is. No big deal. We'll just pluck the fruit. But now we have to work. We have to toil. We have to have the sweat of our brow because of the curse of sin. And then this is why we're seeing in the world today the evidence of a fallen world. Mankind is subject to disease, even like the coronavirus, and death. And we're seeing, unfortunately, on the news, the numbers of deaths reported every day. I don't know about you, but I was feeling the weight of those reports this week. Yesterday, I was kind of an emotional wreck because I was really feeling the weight of how serious this pandemic has gotten. Last week, uh, Joy and Callie and I had a bit of a discussion, and I said, based on the, the data that's coming in that we're watching from really smart people, a lot smarter than I'll ever be, I said, I think it's clear that some of us are going to know people personally who will eventually pass away because of the coronavirus. That was, a, that was an awful thing to even vocalize. I didn't want to say it out loud because of the weight of that. And yet we're finding that that's true. We are praying right now for our church friends back in Scotland and Dalkeith Baptist Church, <clears throat> because we got word sadly last week that one of the sweet saintly gentlemen that we had gotten to know when we were there passed away because of COVID-19. He and his wife had been missionaries, career missionaries in Zimbabwe. So we had that connection because I'd been in Zimbabwe for a short time and we connected on that point. He'd been a pastor. I'm a pastor. He has Parkinson's. My dad had Parkinson's. We just fell in love with this couple. 
sweet couple, and she is now a widow. And that church is grieving corporately. Uh, today, I, I don't know what their service would be like. I think that they've had to go to farm out different online services, but they're connecting with each other in ways, and they can't even get together to grieve the way they would like to. So my heart was just really heavy for that church and continues to be heavy for them. But that's a part of the fall that we're experiencing right now. And many of us don't tend to think of us living in a fallen state until something like this great pause button gets hit. And we start to have to look at it realistically and say, oh, this is one of the results of the fall. I think maybe I'm starting to get it now. The most devastating result of the fall of all the negative consequences of sin is that we, meaning all of mankind, lost sight of our true purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God. First Chronicles 16 says we're supposed to declare his glory among the nations, declare his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. We're supposed to reflect like a moon reflects the light of the sun. We're supposed to reflect God's glory to other people. And when we do that, we sense God's glory being manifested into our lives. We can sense his smile, his acceptance, his affirmation. We are his children. That's our main purpose. And we lost complete sight of that as, as humankind because of the fall. That's why so many people are trying so hard to determine what their worth is made of. What makes me worthwhile? Am I doing it through my job? Am I doing it through my social media? <clears throat> Am I doing it through productivity? Am I doing it by collecting things? Am I working hard so I can show what I've gotten at the end of my life to say I earned more money than these other people? Whatever they're trying to do to feel affirmed is not going to match what our original purpose was and the original source of affirmation, which is our identity is in Christ Jesus because he reflects God. And now we can reflect God's glory to other people around us. A necessary understanding for all of us is that you I used this before a few weeks ago, but I just like it because it's fun to say. <laughs> you are not the belly button of the world. You're not. You're just not the center of the world. That comes from Greek mythology. Zeus sent out these two birds that came flying across the world from two different directions. And where they crossed was supposed to be the center, the belly button of the world. And that is where he was going to plant the omphalos, the powerful religious stone, kind of like the infinity stone for some of you who know about that. And that was going to be the center of power so that and many people thought it was Delphi back in the Greek world. And from that position, he could rule everything because he had the all powerful stone, stone, stone. You're not the belly button of the world. And we're not. I'm not. None of us are. And we need to understand that. That's key to understanding why things are not going to go right for us all the time. Here's a big hypothetical what if, and it's worth looking at. We need to unpack this by saying, well, if I extrapolate this particular worldview, where will it take me? What would be the end result? If you were a God, you're not. Just wanted to make sure that you knew that clearly, you're not. But if you were, for the sake of argument, how would you ensure, if you had it within your own power, to determine how are you going to ensure that all the other people in the world act the way you think they ought to act? What is the basis for how you're going to make them do that? Are you going to force them to act with morality? And who chooses morality? Well, you're God. I guess you get to choose it. So how are you going to make them do that? Are you going to make them love you back? Because if you start trying to come up with things about that, it, 
it really starts to be silly because none of us have that kind of power. But I've also heard some things that when they're trying to kind of throw shade at God Almighty, when they're trying to think that maybe they know more than he does, which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter three, they might think, well, I don't see God as being a moral person because of some of the things I read about in scripture. I would ask, who are you to determine that? And what if there were no God? Let's say that there's no God, that we're just a bunch of matter, bunch of material, and that we're just acting because uh, the survival of the fittest came into being, and we have no real control. Everything that we're doing right now socially is a social construct, which means that we've made it up. We've invented this world of ours and how we react toward one another. And maybe we've decided that it tends to go better for us if we're nice to other people simply because they're nice to us back, and it was kind of a nice thing that we fell into. Well, if there were no God, why then do so many human beings spend so much time and effort trying to figure out the real meaning and nature of love? That is a really good question. And you need to follow up on that if you have questions about whether there's a God or not. Where does love come from? Why would we even want to have any kind of love? Wouldn't we just be wanting to try to get everything there is to get for ourselves? Do we boil it down to a basic base biological instinct because we needed that to propagate? That doesn't sound like the kind of love that the Bible talks about and that we see in Jesus Christ. I think it's a good question to try to track down and just ask yourself, where does love come from? I personally think that you can't find the true nature of love unless you understand what God is and how he loved us, how much he loved us. The outgrowth of a strictly material world is what we see happening today. Here's this lady, I blurred out her face, living my best survival of the fittest life. Grab all the toilet paper you can get and hunker down. That's what we've got as an outgrowth of a material world where we don't have any kind of basis for morality. We don't have altruism. We don't have somebody saying, you know, I'm gonna think more highly of that person than I think of myself. I'm gonna share my toilet paper. I'm going to share everything, even to the point of sacrifice, because that's what we see if we're going to reflect God's glory, because that's what he did for us. And when we see that, we clearly see the one event in history, which we're going to celebrate next week, which unpacks all the other meanings that we've been trying to track down, including where does love come from? And I say it comes from God. So we suppress the truth a lot. Many of us are really good at suppressing the truth because we don't want to see that something is true. I've mentioned this before numerous times in preaching. Because of the fall, because sin entered the world, we have seared consciences. Our consciences have been seared. That's what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? It's like they're cauterized. You know, when you cauterize a wound, what you wind up with is just scar tissue and you can't feel anything there. It's numb. There's no sensitivity there. And so it's like we have this spiritual scar tissue in our lives because of sin in our lives, which means that we're not sensitive to God's spiritual leading in our lives. A seared conscience means we have become futile in our thinking. So says Romans chapter one, even though there's abundant evidence so much evidence that God is in control, that he's the creator. He's put things here for us. 
It's like he's putting neon signs in front of us. Blink, blink, blink. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. But because we have a seared conscience, we don't recognize that. We have these spiritual blinders on and we just can't see it because we're futile in our thinking. So we'll come up with all kinds of really intelligent sounding worldview premises on which we base what we want to do because we want to do it that way. And it boils down to, I know more than God. It's like having a cauterized tongue. I had a friend, well, he called himself a friend, back when I was serving a different church in Ann Arbor a few years ago, and he had grown some peppers, and they looked a little bit like this one, but he said, this is a really mild, sweet pepper. It's so tasty. Would you like that? He said, you grew up in Arizona, didn't you? And I said, I did. He said, well, why don't you taste this and let me know what you think? Oh, buddy. I took one bite of that thing. I couldn't get enough water. I was trying everything I could, trying to get that taste. It, I mean, I couldn't taste for 12 hours. My taste buds were seared. They were cauterized in my mouth. It was awful. I know you can feel sorry for me. Play your little violin. It was like a cauterized taste buds. But when, when we have a cauterized conscience, we are incapable of seeing things, even though it's right in front of our faces. And God has abundantly placed things right in front of us. He even says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? Why can't we taste and see that he's good? Because we've got a cauterized taste bud conscience. I've mixed my metaphors, but I think you get the point. Only God can bring back our taste. Here's the thing. God not only reveals himself to us, but he starts to unpack all this stuff that we've been suppressing like crazy. And sometimes it takes pandemonium, maybe even like an epidemic or a pandemic. Maybe it takes a personal illness. Maybe it takes looking at mortality and saying, what is going to happen to me if I succumb to a virus or an illness at some point in my life? Is there life after death? Am I going to be okay with just, well, I got what I could get in this life. And then when I'm gone, I'm gone. I'm just worm food. Is that going to be okay? Or do I want for something more? Is there something that I haven't satisfied yet? Like C.S. Lewis alluded to when he was saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, if I long for something that can't be satisfied in this world, I can only conclude that I was made for another world. Maybe that's what we need to think about as we push the huge global pause button in the middle of a pandemic and start saying, does my worldview work or not? Or is God truly God? And has he made us? And have we fallen because of sin? And can he remake me and fix what's broken in my life, just like he's going to fix the whole world someday when he consummates his grand plan? Only God can do that. He can bring back our taste buds so we can taste and see that he is good. There's a term that's kind of a crossover term from the medical field into a spiritual realm. The medical field would say that regeneration says the renewal or restoration of a body or bodily part after a loss of tissue or part. Uh, we used to try to catch lizards when I was young because we had a lot of lizards in our uh, backyard in Phoenix, Arizona. And I remember trying to catch one one time and I stepped on its tail. And as you know about lizards, the tail will come off. It just goes and there's no more tail. And so the little lizard can go even faster because he's not carrying around the weight of that tail. And he took off, zoom. But you know what's weird is their tails will regenerate. It's like magic. It's so cool. As a kid, about my grandkids' ages now, 
I remember watching that lizard and keeping track of it because I knew where it stayed. And when it came out the next day, the tail was a little longer. And a few days later, it, it completely grown back. It regenerated. And I thought, that's just incredible. Well, that's regeneration. What happens spiritually is that the radical spiritual change takes place in our life when God, through his Holy Spirit, brings us from a condition of spiritual death to a renewed condition of holiness in life. We are literally walking spiritually dead people apart from Christ. And when he starts to regenerate us by bringing us to life spiritually, there's a renewal, a regeneration that happens. And suddenly we start to see things that we hadn't seen before. The same evidence that we had kind of just sloughed off, evidence that we may have even scoffed at, and start, we start looking at that evidence differently, and we say, yeah, that's pretty incredible. Could an eyeball become an eyeball simply through evolution? Wouldn't there need to be some intelligent design about that? Why does blood clot? Why doesn't a hummingbird wrap around a tree because of the tongue that hangs out, because it doesn't have a sheet that wraps around behind its head? There's a hundred questions like that, that if we really track them down and go down that road and say, yeah, I think there had to have been an intelligent designer. Once God has brought us through regeneration into that ability to say, I have to admit, I don't know it all. I have to admit there may be a being who knows a whole lot more than I do. And he established this world and the order of it. And I need to trust him to reveal more truth because I just don't know as much as he does. Here's a good news, bad news kind of thing. Some people just refuse to allow anything beyond their human comprehension in order to taste and see that God is good. They'll say, well, not, I'm not going to allow any of that evidence because that doesn't fit my worldview. Does that sound really fair to you? If you were a scientist and you said the scientific method means that I'm going to put forth a hypothesis and then I'm going to do a lot of experiments, I'm going to allow any evidence that comes out and then I'll examine the data and see for myself. But if you say, no, I'm only going to allow evidence that's empirical, that I can see and comprehend with my own brain. What happens if you have to start admitting that there's something outside what you can comprehend with your human brain that you're not even allowing into that sphere of your experiment? It doesn't seem fair to me. In other words, you want to be a savior on your own terms. A lot of us are like that. That's what we see on Palm Sunday. We saw a lot of people who were cheering when Jesus came in, riding on a donkey. They were thinking, he's our savior. He's the Messiah. He's going to be the one who's going to come wiping out the Roman government, but he's going to do it our way. We want him to be the kind of leader we want him to be. And yet, all the way back in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that he was going to be the suffering servant to usher in the kingdom of God in a way that they couldn't comprehend. Why? Because justice and love were going to come together on the cross, both of them matching together perfectly. Yes, justice needs to be meted out. Justice had to, to happen. There had to be a payment for sin. You can't just dust it under the rug. You can't just forgive it without there some payment that's there for that because of those three words and the other 19, 20, 21, those other 19 words in the Bible for sin. Many people wanted Jesus to be their savior, but they wanted him on their terms. That's exactly what's going on today. 
So many people still want to grab a hold of Jesus, but we want to grab a verse here or a verse there or a worldview here or a worldview there. And we want him to make us happy because we want to do what we want to do and we want things to work out our way. And I'm here to tell you, because we live in a fallen world, ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. So this week is really important for us as we start thinking about Palm Sunday, going through Holy Week and the events of that week leading up to next Sunday, which is Easter. Because what we lost because of the fall can only be regained because of what happened on the cross. That's what we're celebrating this week. What about Jesus? Did things go his way? Was it fair for him to take that cross to die in our place? It wasn't fair at all. Why would he do it then? Why would it fall on one person, not just because he's a martyr in a political sense, but a person who could literally change the lives of everybody who believed in him? Why would he do that? It's because of love. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only, his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish. Everyone, every single person who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It's love. That's what held him there on that cross was his love for us. People would ask me, after three decades plus of raising kids, would you do it again, knowing all the pain, the sleepless nights, the shed tears, the gray hairs? Would you do it again? And I wouldn't step back and say, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I wouldn't do that. I could say unashamedly, unreservedly, immediately, I would say, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd go through all that again. Why? Because of love. That's the nature of love. That's how we know that we love God is because we're loving him and we sense his love back to us. It's a two-way reciprocal thing. God loves us and he wants to have a love relationship with his creation. Now, here's the thing. And I know a lot of people take issue with that. When we start exploring what is the nature of love, I think it keeps coming right back around to this major issue about pesky old free will. If God knew ahead of time, this is a good question, and it's, it's a smart question. It's an intelligent question. It shows that somebody's really digging in deeply to this thing. So I want to explore it real briefly here. If God knew ahead of time, because of his omniscience, that people would stray from the path and rebel, if they would become like some of those people we heard about in those three terms for sin that we looked at earlier, why didn't he do something about it? Why would he have not intervened? And I would think, Say that again slowly and listen to yourself. Do you hear what you're saying? Because in a sense, you're answering your own question. Why wouldn't he have? Oh, he did do something about it. He died on the cross because for the time that was perfect in God's timing, Jesus Christ did do something about it. And God knew that that was going to happen, but he still wanted to make a way back to himself. And he did so because Jesus, the good shepherd, was going to also become the unblemished lamb, sacrificed once and for all time so that he could conquer death, show that he was God in front of eyewitnesses, by the way. A lot of the New Testament corroborated in literature and in history. We can take it to the bank. This thing really happened. The resurrection is real. We're going to celebrate it next week. And because of that, the Lord is the shepherd to everybody who would place themselves willingly under his leadership as his sheep. 
if you were to say that, the Lord is my shepherd, it means that you're trusting that he knows more than you do, that you trust him with your life and with him as your leader. And I wanted to share real quickly the testimony of somebody that I discovered just yesterday. This one, I've heard people say that a good testimony will just wreck them. And this one wrecked me. It was actually pretty late last night. And I was listening to a Keith and Kristen Getty song about how he will hold me fast. If you want to look it up and listen to that after this, I highly recommend it. It's called He Will Hold Me Fast. Look it up on YouTube. I was listening to that and I started to stray down with my eyes and saw the comment at the very top of the comments. And this is what I saw. I have stage four cancer and I am on palliative care. It's hard to express how much this hymn means to me right now. Thank you, Keith and Kristen, for providing this musical means of encouragement. God is so good. And then he signed his comment, Daniel Musselman. And I was listening to the song, which is powerful in itself, about how he will hold me fast. But then I started scrolling down and seeing other comments that people had written. Somebody else said, how is Daniel doing? I've been praying for him. And then somebody else who knew Daniel wrote this. Daniel went to be with the Lord last year. Daniel Musselman, associate professor of music at Union University, died at the age of 38 after a year and a half battle with cancer. And I about lost it. And then the president of Union University, Samuel Oliver, wrote this. Our faith in Christ gives us assurance that Dan is more alive now than he has ever been. He is with Christ in heaven, free of cancer, totally healed. And because I was still processing the grief over the loss of the friend that we made back in Scotland, a sweet, dear saint of a man who had served God with all of his heart for years, proclaiming the glory of God in another nation. I, I just sat and wept. But I was grateful because I thought, you know, there are going to be many, many, many more people who will understand that this life is not all we get. We're seeing that more clearly now than ever before. And I'm not trying to, to be an opportunist because of a pandemic. I'm just trying to tell the truth. The truth is, and we're seeing it starkly every day in the news, a lot of people are dying every day because of something that's outside of our control. And we feel a lack of control. I have no control over some of the stuff that's going on in my life right now. But that's okay. Because the Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. Because I know that he's going to give me what I need forever. And for that guy that we knew, that sweet saintly man, he doesn't have Parkinson's anymore. He's pain-free. He doesn't have dementia anymore. He was starting to have a little bit of memory loss last July, eight, eight, nine months ago. He doesn't have dementia anymore. He's completely healed, completely whole. And he was at the, the latter end of his life. He was, uh, had lived a good long life, not like Daniel Musselman, who was only 38 at the time he went to be with the Lord. But folks, I'm here to tell you, the only worldview that makes any sense to me at a time like this, in the middle of a pandemic, is the Christian worldview because of what God showed us through his son, Jesus Christ. 
to make a way back to him. I just want to challenge you. If you haven't placed your trust in that good shepherd, oh, I would just urge you to do that. And I'm going to pray a prayer and allow you to repeat that silently. Or if you're in your home and you want to say it out loud, I suppose you could. But I'm going to lead you in that prayer. And if you want to make that kind of decision, here's something that you could pray right now. God, Heavenly Father, I come to you right now recognizing that I do want what only you can offer. I see that I am guilty of sin. I know that I fall short of perfection, of morality. I know that I've sinned, and I pray that you would forgive me of that sin. I pray that you would become my good shepherd, that I would follow you all the days of my life, however long I might have on this earth. And I thank you for forgiving me, and I pray that you will start that, that wonderful regeneration process in my life and that transformation that will happen as you start to conform my character to become more like the character of Jesus. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for rising again, showing me that you can conquer death. Thank you for giving me a resurrection to come so that I can live eternally with you. I want that and I'm grateful for it. Thank you for giving it to me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'd just like to say, I'd be so encouraged to hear from you if you'd like to contact us, if God's encouraged you in some way by this message, or if you've made that decision that I just prayed about, please use that contact page on our website and let me know that so I can pray for you. And if you'd like for me to pray with you, I'll contact you and I'll do that as well. 